You know, I think in all the things that we can pray for, probably one of the hardest things for us to pray as Christians, though we might not always confess this to be true, I think practically we, we might agree the, one of the hardest things we pray as believers in the Lord is not my will, but yours be done. Because there's so often, so often in life, we as human beings are convinced that if God would just do it our way, it would go just like it needs to. And so for us to then, in those moments, actually relinquish my control, my right to the outcome, and to genuinely pray, not my will, this is what I would will, but this is not about that, Father, this is your will, is really hard, but also very, very liberating. That when we relinquish the control that we do not have to the God who absolutely has control, though it might be nerve-wracking, though it might be give us a little trepidation, it is the most liberating place we can live as Christians. And, I'm, and I'm, as the pastor of this church, I'm telling you, I haven't mastered this either. I'm still learning how not to try to take it back from God, to give it up and take it back, to give it up, or to kind of do like this and never really let my hands off of it. And so I find this song that we're singing so uh, beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's also very convicting. Uh, just the challenge to pray, literally, not my will, yours be done as Jesus did. Well, this morning we are in 1 Timothy chapter 4, so if you would, please take out your Bibles and open them up to there. Uh, we were finishing up this chapter in this first letter to Timothy. Um, as we know, we've been looking uh, most recently at chapter 4, and Paul's last week we talked about being a good servant of Christ Jesus and what that entails about being truth speakers, people who proclaim truth. And, and we talked primarily about the spiritual fitness that God calls us to have, to be focused on who we are on the inside and to be building strong, building ourselves up strong on the inside. And, and Paul is not saying, hey, be unhealthy, but he is saying, don't neglect your soul. He's telling Timothy this as a young pastor, but keep in mind these instructions to Timothy aren't just for Timothy. They are actually for Timothy to impart to other people. So as he's instructing Timothy to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, in a sense we're going to look at this this morning, he's telling Timothy to be the example of what a good servant is so that it can be emulated throughout the body so that Timothy is not meant to be the only truth-speaking voice. In fact, Everyone within the sound of my voice, if you call Christ Lord, should be a truth speaker in the name of Christ. Whether you are a pastor, an elder, a deacon, an engineer, a plumber, a carpenter, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, or whatever it is, we're called in Christ Jesus to be truth speakers. And that's really Paul's point. So this morning, Paul brings this chapter to its culmination by, again, addressing the issue, kind of godliness or Christ-likeness. And so, yes, he's coming back around to this idea, and it makes sense that he's doing this, because we as human beings tend to stray far, uh, what, what, is the, what is the phrase I've heard before, uh, to get sidetracked in the wilderness, right? So instead of following God in the wilderness, all we often get sidetracked, and so the, the, the Bible is often calling us back to our primary call as believers, which is to be Christ-like. And if we are Christ-like, that's going to affect how we live and how we speak. And so this morning, as we continue this, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Let's turn our attention 
there now. Starting in chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they all may see your progress, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this time to be together this morning, for the words in front of us and for what they call us to. Uh, they call us to a place of excellence. And not excellence in and of ourselves, God, but excellence by the power of Your Holy Spirit at work in us. And so, Father, may we follow the Spirit as He leads in all truth. May we be transformed. Use this Word to convict and to encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When we think about counterfeiting and counterfeiters, one of the things we have to admit right off the bat is that a counterfeiter, a counterfeiter, that's a hard word to say, a counterfeiter, those people, they're actually really great artists. They're really good at what they do. If you think about what they do, it takes great skill it takes great skill and precision to fool people who are experts. If you think about it, they're able to so clearly copy color palettes, brush strokes, the finest little details these counterfeiters can't get it right at the time, can, can make a beautiful work of art that looks authentic. They can convince an observer that this is real. Though their motives are insidious for ill-gotten gain, we cannot deny that what they are are great imitators. They have mastered the art of imitation, of looking at this real and beautiful painting or this real and beautiful other kind of work of art and creating their own that looks just like it, as if they followed the very artist's instructions to the finest detail. Because they understand something that we Christians need to understand, but in an opposite direction. They understand, counterfeiters that is, that there is great gain in imitating well. That there is great gain in imitating well. And so Paul here is not calling us to be counterfeit, but he is calling us to be committed imitators, people who imitate well. He's calling us not to be imitators of just anything, certainly not of the world, certainly not of, not of the things that are ungodly. He is calling us to be imitators of Christ. When you look at what he tells Timothy here, it is undeniable. It's undeniable what he's telling Timothy, though he doesn't use the phrase, be an imitator of Christ. He is telling Timothy, imitate Christ in Ephesus, even in your youth, so that when people see you, they see Christ, they see the principles of Christ pouring out of you. When we 
when we, when we step back from 1 Timothy and we take the bird's eye view, say we're hovering over it and we're just looking at the book as a whole, really it's very straightforward and simple in terms of what the message is. I'm not saying all the passages are straightforward and simple. And I'm not saying it's easy to apply everything that we read, but what I am saying is to look at the message from a bird's eye view, it is simple. Paul is telling Timothy and the church that we have to contend with false teaching through preaching truth and living godly lives. Now, beloved of God, I can't think of a more simple message to Christians than say, hey, you need to be, you need to be about the business of proclaiming truth and having godly lives. Proclaiming truth and having godly lives. That's kind of the bird's eye view. When we think about what Paul has said here, the overarching principle being godliness, what does godliness determine with regards to the church? Well, according to this letter, godliness determines who is an elder and who is a deacon. When we think about evaluating those two offices, how do we evaluate them? The overarching idea is who is godly among us? Who has the character? How we relate to one another in God's church is determined by godliness, that we need to be godly in our, inter- in our relationships, our interpersonal relationships one to another. Well, Brad, of, of course we, we know that, and of course we do, and, and Paul knows that we know that, and Paul probably knew that Timothy knew that, and the church at Ephesus probably also knew that, but here's the issue. The reason he ri- writes to remind again and again is because Paul understands, I'm going to use a fancy word, anthropology. He understands human beings. He understands man and woman in their sinful state, even in their redeemed state, that so often what we choose is selfishness in relationship. Selfishness with regard to whether I feel like serving or not. Selfishness to what I think I deserve and what you owe me. Well, Paul is trying to break down these barriers by reminding us there is a more excellent way. And it's called godliness, or we can call it Christ-likeness. Godliness, Paul will tell Timothy, we just read, would, would win approval or respect from the church. Paul articulated in chapter 3 that there is great gain in godliness. In these final verses of chapter 4, Paul is saying it's important, it's important for us to embody Christ's likeness. Now, he's talking to Timothy, but we need to understand this letter was not merely a personal letter to Timothy. I mean, it was that, so at the very least it is that. But it's also a letter meant to define how church is structured as a whole. So we should, be, we should feel fairly confident that this letter was also read to the church. So this is instruction for all of us. Like I said a moment ago, this might feel overly repetitive for Paul to broach the subject again. But this gives insight into Paul's understanding of human nature. If we are constantly struggling with the flesh, then Paul is reminding us, don't indulge the flesh, live by the Spirit. That's exactly what he tells the Galatian church. He's kind of saying something similar here. Don't indulge the flesh. Don't do what comes, what we would say, natural to the flesh. Live by the Spirit. Live by that supernatural power that is at work in you that gives you the option and opportunity and the ability to say no to this fleshly thing and yes to Christ. Now, whether we do that or not in a moment is a different matter, but we have the capacity to. If the church will live and thrive in a world that hates her, and make no mistake, 
it becomes clearer by the day that the world hates the church of Christ, then we must put on Christ-likeness and put off the flesh. In other words, the more we put on Christ-likeness, the more we're going to stand apart from the world. And the more we stand apart from the world, will that increase hatred in some? Absolutely it will. It will. It'll make some people hate you more and more. But they can't deny that even through their hatred, there's something different about that person. There's something different about that person. Even sometimes they can't put their finger on it. This is why godliness is one of our best evangelistic tools, to live well in front of others so that when you gain a hearing and you speak truth, they know that you aren't a hypocrite because you're living it. Christ-likeness, what is it, Brad? You've used this word a few times. Here it is. Truth in action. Christ-likeness is truth in action. Christ-likeness is truth in action. And as believers, to live any other way, any other way, is to live a lie. It's to lie to ourselves, and it's to lie to those around us. Because we know the truth. And if we're in Christ, have been set free by the truth, liberated to walk in the pathway of truth by the Holy Spirit. And so to do anything else is to live a lie. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's uh, one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that we're called to be exemplary in both word and deed. That we are called to be exemplary in both word and deed. So in, in essence, that we are to be living, breathing examples of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm going to give my caveat here because I think it's important. Will you do that perfectly? No. Will you do that all the time? Absolutely not. Are there many times you're going to fail and fall down? Yes. And you know what the best thing you can do in those moments? The absolute very best thing you can do is own it, repent, and move on. Because nothing, I mean, you can, you can try to skirt it off to the side. You can try to make people think, well, maybe they misunderstood. Or you can just be transparent and you say, hey, I have feet of clay. I messed up. What I did was wrong, and I've got to move on now. Because repentance is a beautiful thing. And when we can repent with and in front of other people and let them see, I mess up too. I constantly depend on the grace of God. That is also being something exemplary. It's being exemplary in your humility and your dependence upon Christ. But we are called to be examples of Christ. And so what is the Christian's call? Is to live well, to live well and proclaim truth. You don't have to be a pastor or a, or a biblical teacher or some sort of church officer to proclaim truth. You merely have to have relationships and be willing to say what's true. You merely have to be in the, in the vicinity of people and being willing, if you hear something that's not true, to lovingly, humbly, but boldly challenge it. Because what has happened over the decades is that culture has subtly made the church shift from where once we had a loud voice in the public square, now we're almost silent because so much effort has gone into, well, that's religious and that's private. You don't bring that up here. That's hogwash because your religion is your identity in Christ. And we bring up truth whenever we hear falsehood. And so I want to challenge you. You know, actually, the, more I, the older I get, the more interactions I have, the more I read, the more emboldened I feel to say, I'm sorry, that's false. 
That's just not true. And not meanly, not in a self-serving way, and not trying to be cantankerous, but because I'm starting, I'm not starting, this call is weighing heavier and heavier on me personally that we've got to be voices of truth in places where lies are being just, they're flowing out like a fire hydrant. So naturally, the same, since nothing is new under the sun, same thing was happening in Ephesus that's happening now, probably a little bit different, but same idea. And so Paul essentially is telling Timothy and the church, you're, you're to preach and you're to do. You're to, uh, to Timothy, he says right here, command and teach these things. So get there in just a second. So Timothy's calling um, this idea to command and teach and then to be an example. Two, two things right out of the gate here, command and teach and then be an example. That's, that's Timothy's calling, but it also applies to all of God's people that we are to proclaim and in some senses teach, but we also, excuse me, we also are to be an example. Now, right out of the gate, right here in verse 11, command and teach these things. Those two, command and teach, are what are called imperative verbs. Now, an imperative verb is the verbal tense of command, urgency. So these are not just requests. These are not just suggestions. Paul is telling Timothy that he must command and teach these things. Now, to be What's interesting is those two imperative commands that come right there are the first of ten in these six verses. So we might call this paragraph an imperative paragraph because the, Paul has just laid out a lot of good stuff for Timothy. Now he's telling him this is the application point. Command and teach. Be an example. Uh, devote yourself. Do not neglect. Practice. Immerse. Keep a close watch. All these things are urgent. They're commands. They're not suggestions. So as I said, these are the first two of ten. And you're looking at this command and teach. For Timothy, that's his overarching call, is to command and teach. Now, when you look at this very ambiguous phrase that Paul uses several times in this book, these things, the question we have to ask is, to what is it referring? Is it referring to what follows? We can safely say it's, it's not that. Is it referring to the letter as a whole in a very broad sense? Well, it very well could be. In a more narrow sense, is it referring to the previous paragraph? Well, I think broadly you can say, yeah, in a, in a broad sense it's referring to everything that Paul's writing, but more narrowly, more to the point, he's probably talking about the things that he's just said. Command and teach these things. What is it that he's to command and teach? That godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. That's why it says, for toward this we toil and strive. That was verse 8 in the previous paragraph. So it seems to me that Paul is talking about command and teach what it means to be godly to your people, to the people at Ephesus, to the people who need the message. So he has this positive thing, command and teach these things. This is Paul's way. He comes right back around with this negative command. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So when Paul wants to make sometimes a positive command, he'll actually use a negative. So when he says, let no one despise you for your youth, again, imperative command, express command by Paul. In other words, Timothy, work hard to make sure people admire you. He says, no, nah, don't let them despise you for your youth. And he's going to tell them how to do it here in just, a, in just a moment. 
But Paul is making a negative statement, let no one, to express a positive. Make sure people respect you, essentially is what Paul is saying. Make sure people respect you. Now, when we think about youth here, it's, we need to ferret that out. What does Paul mean? Is, is Timothy a, a teenager? Is he 18 or younger? Well, no. No, it, it, it's mo- most likely that Timothy is anywhere from his late 20s to his mid or to his early to mid 30s. So think 27 to 35, somewhere within that, within that range. But in a culture that had great honor, for the elder, it could be easy for elderly people in his or older people in his congregation and the church at Ephesus to look at him as a young man of no experience. What are you going to say to me? You haven't lived life yet. So it could be easy to see why Paul has to give this command. But the clear thing is, is what does he tell Timothy? First, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but be an example but set the believers an example. Now, that word example there is interesting. It's, in Greek, it's the word tupas. Um, it's where we get our English word type from. Now, I don't know how many of you remember typewriters that when you hit the button, it had the long stem, and it would go Anybody remember those? I know some of you do. Um, I do, too. In fact, when I took typing in high school, we still had those, those little and those little arms would be going. But anyway, if you ever pulled your page out, you know, the and then pulled your page out, you could turn it over, you could rub your hand across the back, and you could actually feel where when the arm struck the page, it made an indention. It made an imprint. It didn't just put ink on the page. It actually pushed in the paper. It left an imprint. That word tupas does mean be an example. It also means being a type. But if we could kind of put it in some sort of colloquial kind of street language way, it means leave your mark, leave an imprint, make an impression on the believer. So Paul tells Timothy here, let no one despise you for your youth, but leave an impression or set an impression in the, on the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. In other words, he's, he's telling Timothy, be an example, be exemplary, but leave a lasting impression. And I love what he does here. Look at the words he uses. I just read them. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Everything that comes together to talk about godliness. Speak well. Live well. Love well. And you can, you can think of a pastor, a man setting a, an example of love, love being, love and faith being important. Not that the others aren't, but loving well in a congregation where there's conflict, where there's false teaching. How do, I love, how do I love the sheep well is by protecting them from what is false and being a voice of what is true. How do I love people in conflict well? By making it my practice to assume the best in somebody's motives until we see otherwise. Of making it my practice to not be suspicious until there's reason. To avoiding rudeness to walking with people and letting that love cover a multitude of sins, and faith, being willing to believe when it seems impossible, being the example of trusting in the Lord when circumstances seem so insurmountable. So he's telling Timothy, in purity, 
Be the one who guards yourself, who people can come to because they know you are a man of purity, that you are guarding your eyes, that you are guarding your mind, that you are guarding your body. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Now, why shouldn't people despise him from his youth, despise him for his youth? Because when they look at his life, they see these things and they can't argue with the godliness at work in this man. That's Paul's point. When we look at verse 12, it really should be the goal of every Christian. Every Christian, no matter station, no matter life, no matter vocation, this should be our goal. And when we look at this, sometimes I think maybe as Christians we think, well, maybe that's a little daunting to be an example in these things. But here's where I want to encourage you, and even myself, because even as I think through this, I think, you know, am I really living this out? Can I? Uh, the question is, to the first question, not perfectly, no, I'm not. Can I? I can, and you know why? Not because of Brad, and you not because of you. But the simple reality is that we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. And what we're told is, is that the Spirit works in our lives and hearts, that the Spirit is there when temptation comes, when the temptation to speak foully, to live wrongly, to love poorly, to believe uh, weakly, or to avoid purity. The Spirit is there saying, don't do this. Don't do it. You know the way. Walk in it. So we're indwelled by the power of the Spirit to live out His ethic. Our prayer should be, Father, help me take this verse out of 1 Timothy, uh, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12, and be an example. That's the question we should be asking ourselves. How can I be an example to the believers around me? And, and this is not to fan any, any pride. This is not to say, I look at how many followers I have. None of that nonsense. That's all from a place of sin. It's just to say, God, help me live well before people who are watching. That should be your prayer. It should be my prayer. And let us pray that together for one another. <clears throat> Paul continues, until I come, so we still hear again, we've already been told once in this letter that he's planning on coming, so until I come, he has the firm expectation he will be back at Ephesus. Devote yourself, imperative command, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So Paul tells Timothy there are three aspects to his public ministry that are vital. The first thing that he says is public reading of Scripture. Now, literally in the Greek, it just says the public reading or the reading, actually, just the reading. The reading is understood. And Paul's listeners or Timothy's people would have heard it or would have understood exactly what it meant. Um, there was a pattern that was set up by synagogues that was already at work in the world where at, when they gathered for meeting, they would read passages from the Old Testament. If you remember, in Jesus' public earthly ministry, when it talks about him going to the synagogue, even in some, he would read a passage, specifically Isaiah in one instance, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. But the pattern was is to read a passage of Scripture, and then someone would stand up with an exhortation. In Acts chapter 13, verse 15, we read, and after reading from the law... And the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent a message to them. 
that is Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul even remarks in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, that to this day when Moses has read, the people's hearts are veiled. So we've got a pattern for religious gathering here that's already set up for the church, that there was reading, the reading of Scripture. And so when Paul read Scripture in this day, Paul was not only probably, they were not only probably reading Old Testament portions of Scripture, they were by this time reading even the circulated letters of the apostles. Because Paul will even instruct, have this letter read to the different churches in other places. So Paul is very adamant to Timothy that you need to be reading the Word out loud. Why? Because the Word is vital. It is the thing we need. When we are gathered together, we need to hear the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God. It's the very bread of life that we've been given. So that's one of the reasons here at the chapel we've started reading through the Word, just to read it, just because it gives life. Just the reading of the Word, since it does not return void, gives life. But Paul also says, so there's the public reading of Scripture there's the exhortation. Exhortation here it means preaching. In fact, read this as faithful preaching. So, Timothy, you should read the Word, and then there should be faithful preaching that explains the Word, that's rightly dividing the Word of truth, that's taking the words as they stand and explaining them to the flock. Now, why might in this culture it be so important to be publicly reading from the scrolls? Well, because I would imagine everybody in this room, at least on your row, has one or two Bibles in front of you that you can actually read. Well, at this time, scrolls were very expensive. The average farmer or whatever, guildsman, couldn't afford these expensive scrolls because they were handwritten. And most of the people couldn't read. So their only interaction with the Word of God was when it was read in the gathering. And then the only way they're really going to understand it is to have someone who can read, who can understand it, who can then exhort them in the truth of it, what the Word is saying, which is why they were so adamant you get the false teachers out of here. Because remember, they can't go home and look through all their scrolls to see if false teacher Joe is telling them the truth. They have to take these people at their word, which is why it was so important for Timothy and faithful elders to dispel what is false. So the exhortation was important. Then teaching. Ground the church, Timothy, through different opportunities, through different teaching opportunities to constantly reaffirm the truth of the Word in their minds and hearts. So what is the church to do? To be vigilant to find opportunities to read, preach, and teach the Word. I'm very grateful those are what we try to do here at the chapel. We, have, we do it through adult Bible hour and youth-specific stuff and Sunday morning worship and small groups and manning up and other opportunities. The ladies do different studies from time to time and other opportunities for us to learn and grow in the Word. Paul continues here. He says, Do not neglect, again, imperative command, express command, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy here is charged to use his gift. 
So in this context, we could say he's charged to use his gift for the good and growth of the church. Now, first question we have is, is Paul doesn't clarify what the gift is. What is it that Timothy has in giftedness? Well, some people had said, well, he was gifted in administration to be able to organize things. Some people said, well, no, he was gifted in discernment to be able to uh, use uh, spirit-inspired discernment to, to settle issues. Me personally, sure, he could have been gifted with those things. I happen to think it's probably more of a preaching-teaching type gift simply because of the instructions specific to Timothy where you constantly see Paul telling him, proclaim, proclaim, contend, contend, proclaim, where he's telling Timothy that his primary duty there is to rightly divide the word of truth. And so, whatever, I, I think that preaching and teaching, in my opinion, is exactly what Paul is driving at. But look at how he describes it. He says, do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given. Again, I'm not trying to be too technical here, but grammar speaking, that's a passive. In other words, this is not a gift that just came up in Timothy of his own accord. It came from outside of Timothy. It was given to Timothy. It was something not natural to Timothy that he exercised. And we, Paul expands where it was given through prophecy, read through the Lord, through divine intervention, through God's gift. And then we find that the elders recognize and they lay their hands on him as if to commission him to go and do the work of the ministry. You know, in, in, my, in my pastoral time, my time as a pastor, I'm always wary of somebody who comes to me and the first thing out of their mouth is what their spiritual gift is, though it's never been affirmed. I mean, one of my, when I say one of my favorites, read straight sarcasm. Um, I'll, just, I'll just be, I'll just say it the opposite way. One I don't like. One, one interaction I've had in my time that I don't like where somebody put their hand on my shoulder and they told me I'm gifted with discernment. And people are. I appreciate the gift of discernment. And when you meet people who are gifted with discernment and you get to know them, you can see it in them because they, they, they have the capacity to see the nuances and the subtleties. But this, this, this fellow was gifted with discernment, and discernment meant that every time somebody said something, he took the opposite position. That was what discernment meant to him. I mean, I, I can't remember in the few times I interact with him that he ever agreed with anything that anybody said because he had discernment. And he saw that everybody else was wrong. When you start dealing with that type of spirit and you start dealing with a spiritual gift, when you have a spiritual gift, it'll be affirmed by other people. It's impossible for it not to. When people see the Lord at work in you, they can't help but see a gift. And so when Paul tells Timothy, don't neglect your gift, He's telling Timothy to use your gift. And in fact, the elders affirmed, yes, Timothy has this gift. In fact, we believe he has it so much we're going to lay our hands on him and commission him out to do the work of ministry because we see the gift at work. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all you ever need to have is human approval or you need to be working for the approval of man. Please don't hear me say that. But here's what you need to hear. When the Lord is working in you and gifts in you, people will see it. And people will want to affirm it. So Timothy was affirmed by the elders. He was commissioned by the elders. They were encouraging Timothy for his labors. And let me say one, a couple other things about gifts. 
There are some, uh, you know, denominations of Christianity who focus so much on the gifts that they neglect the fruits. But I'll say this. There are also some, some who focus so much on the fruits that they neglect the gifts. Beloved, we've got to find a balance there. We can have the fruit of the Spirit and be gifted. And when we use our gifts, our gifts are not for monetary gain. They're not for social clout. They're not to rise some sort of uh, evangelical ladder. They are for God's glory and the good of His church. That's what the gifts are for. We don't use them to get rich. We don't use them uh, to get accolades. We don't use them for notoriety. We use them for the audience of one, and His name is Jesus Christ, for His glory. Now, is it nice when people encourage you in your gifts? Yes. And if you see gifts working in people, encourage them. I love it when people encourage me, and I'm sure you love I have never met somebody that says, you know, I really like to be encouraged, you know, ever in my life. And if someone encourages you in your gifts, you can just say thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, God be praised, or however you want to say it. We should encourage people in their gifts, and it is a tremendous honor and I say this speaking as a pastor, it is a tremendous honor when you can use gifts of ministry and earn a living by it. God is honored when that happens. But I'll say this, encouragement is great, please be encouraging. Remuneration is great, thank you for, for giving me a salary. But the primary purpose that we have gifts is to glorify God, it's to glorify God and bring glory to Him and to bring the encouragement of truth to his people. So we remember then that when we exercise our gifts, it is solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And if you're encouraged, God be praised. And if you're able to make a living doing it, God be praised. Paul is telling Timothy, use your gifts. He continues, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. I love that the ESV does that because literally in the Greek text it does say practice these things and then kind of, kind of it's an odd construction, be in them. But the idea of the Greek text is to immerse yourself, absorb yourself in them. These things being your gifts and all the ministry that Paul's been talking about heretofore, he's saying exercise your gifts in the church, and you should do these things, immerse yourself in them, be absorbed in them. And look, look at what he says. So oftentimes people, people think, well, we, sh we, sh you know, we need to always do it in private because it's, it's pride if we let people see what we're doing. What does Paul say? So that all, all may see your progress. So when we think about this, double command, practice, keep doing it, immerse yourself in them, be absorbed in the, in, in the work, give yourself to it, so that all may see. Now, why would Paul say that? It's twofold, really, in this context. Let's deal with the more original context first. Why would he tell Timothy this? Because Paul wanted the church to see him grow and mature, because he didn't want the church to despise him for his youth, so he wanted him to do these things for all to see so that they could continue to watch him grow and mature. Great. Also, so that there is mutual encouragement to the church. So when I exercise my gifts with you, and you exercise your gifts with me, and we see each other doing it, it's encouraging to us. 
I'm deeply encouraged when I see people serving and loving and practicing hospitality and teaching and leading and administrating and doing all the things that people are gifted to do within the context of the local assembly. It it warms my heart. It reminds me of how necessary we are for one another, of how essential it is that we be a body and that we function in cooperation one with the other. Because the people tend to highlight the preaching and teaching gifts, and they're great, and I'm thankful for them. But there are so many other gifts that this church would not happen if we didn't have it. And so we, we, we live out our gifts. Seek to live out your gifts in front of all. Not so you can boast. Not so you can just uh, try to get compliments, but so that we can all be encouraged by it. So operating in our gifts really is a great way to encourage one another. And for Timothy, it was a great way to remind the church, though I am young, I am living out my life in faithfulness to the Lord. He closes it off with this. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, on the teaching. Persist in this, or by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We'll come to the more difficult part here in just a moment. But basically, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Examine our own lives, right? We need to examine our own lives, and in Timothy's context, even what he's teaching. Now, why? Why is Paul giving him this instruction? Because sometimes when we are serving, we can be so committed to the service that we lose ourselves in the midst. This is especially true of pastors who serve in ministry, where they can get so caught up in the ministry And then there's this, you can look at it. When pastors fall, you can see what happened. Either they went went in such a sinful direction that it was inevitable, or sometimes, let's not use the word fall. There's too much baggage with that. Let's use the word burnout, or let's use the word uh, just kind of give up. Because at some point in their ministry, they stopped examining themselves because they were so focused on examining other people. Can I, can I just be transparent with you? Pray for me. It's a temptation of mine to get lost in everything else going on and realize there have been weeks where I've not really nourished my soul with the Word. Have I read it? Yeah, I have. I've let my eyes look at the page. I've, I've let it kind of enter into my brain. But have I done much with it? No, because about 15 minutes after I read, my mind is already darting to all the things. The tyranny of the urgent is what it's called. The tyranny of the urgent where my mind begins to dart on everything else that I have to do. And this is why I love our elders because they can spot, they spotted it in me. You got an email to the degree that, hey, Brad is going to pull back from a few things because he's got to tend his soul. Well, God be praised, it's what I've been doing, reading and getting back to the nourishment of my own soul. Pray for me that I'll do that. Pray for me. Because it's just so easy. And it's not just with pastors. You know it yourself. If you are a compassionate person in this room, how easy is it for you to get so focused on other people that one day you wake up and you can't remember the last time you did something to nourish your own soul? I know you're in here. And so Paul is telling Timothy, and this is great practical wisdom. Hey, examine your life. Keep a watch on it. Examine your teaching. Keep a watch on it so that you don't lose yourself in the work of the ministry. 
So when he tells him to watch his life, he's saying, are you imitating Christ, Timothy? Beloved of God, are you imitating Christ? Are you pursuing godliness? When he asks Timothy, are you watching your teaching or telling Timothy to watch his teaching? Do we get lost in current events? Do we get lost in what's going on around us? Do we get lost in pointless issues? What does he call them? Pointless or empty myths. Should we be involved in current issues? Yes, but not to the exclusion of nourishing our souls in the Word of God. Not to the exclusion of taking time like we're doing this morning to just dig into the Word and let it feed us. So don't get lost in the ministry, young Timothy. Watch yourself. Watch closely. And here's what I'll add to this just as an application. Have people in your life who are watching you and watching closely so that when they see the warning signs, they can say, hey, let me scoop you up here. It's time for you to get back on track. And that's not a rebuke. That is an act of supreme love. Now, persist in this. Again, express command. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What in the world does Paul mean by this? You will save yourself and your hearers. The same word in the Greek that is used for salvation. So how do we deal with that? Well, if you were here last week and you heard me explain chapter 10, you'll have some clue as to where I'm going with this. We, here's what we know. We can go ahead and dispel some sort of, we can go ahead and dispel the obvious heresy. Paul is not implying that Timothy could somehow redeem himself or his hearers. He is not. Timothy is redeemed. The true people of Christ are redeemed. This is the Paul who wrote Ephesians 2. that says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. So we can go ahead and dismiss any notion that Paul has something redemptive in mind here. So he's got to mean something else. So we can set that aside, then it becomes a little bit easier to deal with. For by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Save here, again, is used in its more generic sense. So think of the idea of preserve or keep. And so what the implication of Paul is saying is that if you persist in being a godly example, proclaiming truth, the message of truth will help preserve both you and those who are hearing truth, those who are listening and following truth. So Paul's in a sense saying the faithful preaching that you do is the very thing, the very panacea, the very, the very food and, and water and air that your people need to stay on the pathway of truth. And if we are faithful in this, we live preserved. We're preserved not because of the preacher, not because even of his own ethic, but because of the power at Christ of Christ at work in both. So we're preserved by Christ. Beloved, here's what I would say to you. Faithful preaching, faithful preaching should lead us to Christ again and again and again and again. That is where preaching should take us. And if preaching is not taking us there, we need to examine and figure out why. That is true of me and of any preacher you ever hear. The preaching should be leading to Christ. 
So the sum of the matter then this morning is this, as we kind of wrap up chapter 4, that truth should shape what we say and do. The honest question I think we have to ask ourselves is this, how much of our lives is based on what we know is true? How much of our lives is based on what we know is true? It just becomes so easy to live out of lies and false promises of pleasure. It does. We have. We do. And no matter how often those things, that is lies and false promises, no matter how often those things give us death, we'll go after them. You know why? Because they're easy. Because they're easy. It's an easy goal. It's an easy fix. It's a quick fix. We'll go after them because they're easy. But Paul reminds us here that no matter how hard the truth is, it gives life. Truth preserves us in a world of death. And this is why Satan always comes after the truth. Always. That's his first attack is what is true. To the addict, oh, you can handle this. It's a lie. Those people are telling you can't handle it. You can, man. You can. And you can't. That's the first thing. Attack the truth. To the person who, who has uncontrollable sexual urges, no, you can handle it. Just go, go, on, go on to that website. Go into that building. You can handle it. You can be alone with her or with him. It's fine. You've got this. Attack at the truth. This is where we have to realize that as human beings, we are weak, and we are weak. We are weak because we are made to have our strength in Christ. And so the truth that Satan wants to tell you this morning, a fundamental truth, is you're strong enough. But hear the truth. No, you're not. But Christ in you is. And Christ in you is not leading you to those places of easy pleasure. He's leading you and me on the narrow way that few find. Because the broad way is the way of fun, pleasure, ease, and I'm strong enough. The narrow way is I'm weak Life is hard, and I need the mercy of Christ. To convince someone that truth is not true is to rob them of a foundational pillar of life. So, let us examine our lives closely and be people of the truth, because what Scripture tells us is that truth leads to life, and truth sets us free. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth this morning. Thank you for your word and its power and the grace therein. Lord, I thank you. Father, I thank you for just words that remind us of how important it is to love you, to love one another, to be faithful, to be exemplary, to be godly, to be Christ-like, to not lose ourselves in the midst of trying to serve but to not be so afraid of losing ourselves that we don't serve, to give ourselves fully to you so that we can serve in a way that brings honor to your name. Oh, Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Though often we are unlovely, thank you for keeping us and preserving us. And may your truth keep us always as you've promised to do. Through Christ we pray. Amen.